Well, we're going to see today that indeed the love of Jesus lifts us to glory and we're going to start unpacking exactly what that means, what glory is going to look like if you turn to Revelation chapter 2. Before we get into it, as I mentioned uh, two weeks ago, I gave the elders the uh, report on the controversy uh, last year um, at our monthly session meeting. That was a week ago, Tuesday, and we had a good time of prayer together, uh, spent some extended time of prayer. They took a week to prayerfully work through it on their own, and then last week I met them uh, individually uh, 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 to start talking through it. Uh, As I've been saying uh, all along, we've got to point the finger uh, at ourselves, and uh, I know this is true for me. I've been through a number of controversies as a pastor over the last 35 years. And as a pastor, one of the hardest parts of that is that even when I'm hanging on a cross, even when it feels like someone's crucifying me, uh, I can't point all the fingers at them. Unlike Christ, I've often envied Christ because there's flesh in me and and I react as well. And um, so we've got to point the finger at ourselves and all my interviews confirm this. There's a hot seat for everyone, myself included. I've had stuff to work through. It's provoked my own flesh as I've uh, listened to people and had to apologize a couple times. And um, so there's a hot seat for everyone, for pastors, for elders, for the presbytery, and for the congregation. It's really the only way out of this. And I'm not surprised at the response of these uh, good men on session as we talked last week. It's a work that began, it's not, it's not us, it began long before we came. So we've met individually and we'll meet for the first time to start uh, discussing this as a group uh, tomorrow night at 6.30 and then again on Thursday night and then the next week we've got I think Wednesday and Friday we've got uh, two days scheduled the week following. We're just trying to be led of the Lord as to our timing and see how he guides. The congregation will be brought in as well, all of you at a congregational meeting uh, when the time is right. So just uh, be praying and, and we will uh, keep you posted. So it's good to go to the place where all this stuff that we go through on life is going to be shown to be indispensable to the glory that it's producing. The sufferings of this present time, Paul said, are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed through us as a result of, uh, as a result of all the agony. The elder in the picture up there is guiding the younger man. You might recognize him. I don't know. The young man's name is Christian. Christian is the uh, pilgrim in John, John Bunyan's allegory, the uh, pilgrim's progress. Christian stands for you and me. And the older man is getting on in years. And if you read the book, he's gotten to the place where he's comfortable with his years. He's probably long since advanced beyond the stage that I am and looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, that's not me. That can't be me. He's embraced that and he's got a lot of wisdom. But I feel kind of like the grandfather whose granddaughter was sitting on his lap. And some of you, I'm sure, felt this way too, though um, I've got a long way to go. But the little girl was feeling her grandfather's face. And uh, she said, God made you a long time ago, didn't he? (laughs) Yes, sweetheart, he answered, God made me a long time ago. She paused and then she asked, Grandpa, did God make me too? Yes, honey, God made you just a little while ago. To which she said, God's getting better at it, isn't he? (laughs) Of course, it's not his fault. It's our fault. It's sin that's causing us to waste away. But we're going to see just today just how good he is at it. 
just what he's making of us all through the sin and all of the rest and what he'll do with us, including grandmas and grandpas, when death is uh, no longer. So the spiritual grandfather up there is showing Christian the way as he uh, starts out on his pilgrim journey, uh, on the narrow way, the way of agony that's going to lead him to glory. And the elder knows all about that way. He's been through it. And so he says, this is the way you must go with all who have gone before. You have turned pilgrim, who have turned pilgrims to seek a world to come. That's ultimately what it's all about. They met with hardships along the way. And troubles night and day. They trod on serpents, fought with devils, and also overcome many evils. Oh, be not like pliable, he said. Pliable is the one who compromised with the world and then fell away. Be not like pliable. Alas, poor man, is the celestial glory of so small esteem with him that he does not count it worth running the hazards of a few difficulties to obtain it. No, he fell away. We've seen that for every believer, the Christian life is indeed like that. It's a momentary life of labor. It's a momentary life of labor, as we've seen over the last two weeks, in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. We've seen how in many ways that is a a kind of a cliff notes version of the Christian life by the author himself, by the author of the Christian faith. That, it, that it's a long and winding road to glory, often a steep ascent, sometimes with cliffs on both sides, with many hazards along the way, and it's all wrapped up in the phrase, Christ's phrase, to him who overcomes, I will give. Seven times Christ says this with, with, with each of the seven churches, and in so doing, he is, he's characterizing the Christian life. Again, that it's a momentary life of labor. He who overcomes. This is the way you must go all, with all who have gone before. It's all been the same for everyone, for every true believer. He who overcomes, I will give for an eternity of treasure in his presence. For this is the way you must go to seek the world to come. Says it all. Today we turn from what and how we're overcoming, Roman numeral one in your notes, to what we'll be getting. Roman numeral two. So just what is it about the world to come that Christ focuses on here? Well, two things. First, point A in your notes. He says essentially that there will be inevitable rewards inevitable rewards this cliff note summary of the christian life in revelation 2 and 3 almost literally hinges on this very point it's in the very middle or near the middle of these two chapters uh, at the end of chapter 2 in verse 23 where christ doesn't highlight any one reward like he does at the end of each of the seven letters as we'll see in a bit but rather here he tells us something about all of them together When he says, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He who overcomes, I will give to, uh, uh, according to your deeds. Now this happens both in life and in the afterlife. 
And it's so fundamental to the afterlife that Christ repeats this at the very end of Revelation so we don't forget it. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, where he says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And what's the bottom line, the overarching idea behind his reward? Same as chapter 2, to render every man according to what he has done. And then you see it a third time. Near the middle of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 14, verse 13, and it's not verse 23 as it says in your notes, it's verse 13, where John heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, because you're going to get something. Same thing, overcoming life. You may even die a martyr. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labor. Same idea, it's an overcoming life of labor until we die. But here it is. Why are they blessed? For, and listen to this, their deeds follow with them. Same idea. And what that means is this. Well, it's a lot, it means a lot of things. But underneath it all, it means that whatever your deeds do down here or don't do, nothing is wasted because they follow with you. It's not, it's not true that you can't take anything with you. Well, of course, there, there's a whole lot you can't take. You cannot take. It's like J.D. Rockefeller's accountant. Of course, he was fabulously wealthy. And after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave? To which the accountant answered, yeah, all of it. So yeah, in some important ways, you can't take anything with you. But on the other hand, you can take a whole lot with you and you will. So what does it mean that our deeds follow with us, that he will record us, reward us according to our deeds? Well, on one hand, it means that we better not waste our lives because there will be variable rewards according to our deeds, depending on how we live our lives. He will reward us according to them, as we saw last time. So the question is, what are you living for? Don't waste your life or your retirement or whatever. But on the other hand, it means that while our rewards Uh, are variable, they are also inevitable. So whether you are a success or a failure, humanly speaking, to all appearances, whether you are a success or a failure in your overcoming life of labor, um, and this applies to all that happened last year, don't despair. Because nothing is wasted as you labored as best you could to work through it. When he says our deeds follow with us, one of the things it means is this. We take them with us because they become part of us. What you become as a result of what you do is a good part of what you're going to take with you. It's as inevitable as a law. In fact, it is a law. We call it the law of the harvest. Galatians 5, 6, for instance, whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's talking about glory here. Which, among other things, means the fullness of character that we develop that's going to shine forever. 
So then let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. Don't despair. Don't look at what it's doing around you. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's success. Sometimes there's failure. Don't grow weary in doing good because your deeds follow with you. As someone said, famous quote, sow a thought and reap an act. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny in glory. And we catch glimpses of it just like Christian all along the way. What Christian was seeing in that picture, or what was Christian seeing as he peers into the future? One of the things Christ is saying is this. He's saying, dear pilgrim, dear Christian, look to eternity's sunrise. Never take your eyes off of it because what you do becomes the reality of who you are, the glory of what you will be, your destiny in eternity. It's like Bruce Milne wrote. He said, every kingdom work whether publicly performed or privately endeavored, partakes of the kingdom's imperishable character and produces inevitable treasure. Every honest intention, listen to this, every stumbling word of witness, whether you're successful or not, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything literally which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one, they will all find their place in us and through us in the heavenly glory that will dawn at his coming. You may have given your life to something that went up in smoke and you thought you were doing God's will and you had promises for what was going to happen. But it's not going up in smoke. It's, really, it's going up in glory because there's no smoke in heaven. It will follow with you thanks to what it did to you. Every ounce of labor Every drop of blood, if necessary. Every last tear. But it's not just character that we'll take with us. The character that comes from, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears down here. It's our gifts and abilities, even, even though it may have felt like you were exercising them in futility. You might say that life uh, is the gymnasium. It's the nursery it's the obstacle course. Sometimes it feels like the hamster's wheel, right? Where we develop our gifts and abilities for eternity. Life, life, life is, as Christ said, the parable of the talents. The talents you develop down here and we have this on good authority, will be put to good use up there. In fact, that's the whole point of the parable of the talents. What you're doing down here is practice for what you'll be doing forever. Those deeds, too, follow with us. 
Louis Marcos put it this way, one of my favorite authors. He said, every Christian, by making a full and proper use of his God-given talents, becomes more fully prepared for that higher existence that awaits us in heaven. And then he sums up everything we've been talking about so far like this. How many of us have practiced for days uh, a speech or a song like me? I wrote a book once and God was in it or so I felt. And I prayed and he gave me promises of what he was going to do through it or so I thought. And words just felt like they came from him. But then it just all died. The publisher went belly up. It was the last book they ever published. So it became an orphan. We all go through that. He says, how many of us have practiced for days a speech or a song or worked long hours on a meal or spent long years on a degree or a career or a relationship only to find our efforts greeted with ambivalence or envy or scorn or failure? Was it all for nothing? To answer that question, we must ask a related question. What is it in man that survives death? And in response, I would say it is his personality replete with his values and beliefs and abilities and gifts and qualities of character and mind that he cultivated in this life. Whatever contributes to making a person what he will forever be, then, has eternal significance. And then he concludes with this. It's just what we've been saying. We shall take with us more than we sometimes think. Bottom line, nothing is wasted because they are inevitable rewards. And so blessed are those who die in the Lord for their deeds follow with them. Why? Back to Revelation 2.23. I will give to each of you the hinge verse of these letters according to your deeds. But they're not only inevitable rewards, point A in your notes, they will be like indescribably invaluable rewards. And each letter ends with a different reward to give us another glimpse of glory as we look ahead. It starts at the beginning of chapter 2 with what Christ promised the church at Ephesus, the first church. Verse 7, to him who overcomes, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's point one in your notes, the tree of life. It's in the paradise of God, he says, which will be New Jerusalem. He calls it the paradise of God because New Jerusalem is going to be like this, this consummation of the Garden of Eden, of the first paradise. It'll be a garden city with whole regions of natural preserves and so much more as we're going to see next time. And the tree of life will be there. And where is it going to be? Well, it says in Revelation 22:2 that the city will have this main highway that will be really wide going 1,500 miles through the city. And uh, there's a wide river coursing through, the main, through, through this auto bond through this grand promenade through the middle of it of a highway and on both sides of that river it says will be the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit every month there's so much here but this single species of tree will bear 12 kinds of fruit that are going to change every month through the length of the city all along the river there will be 12 harvests each year with different yields each month that we'll never tire of and that will be to die for and that will be like indescribably delectable. It says in Genesis that 
When God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, they expelled, he expelled them so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. Remember that? And what? Live forever. Genesis 3.22. And the point here in Revelation 2 is that someday we will eat of it and we'll eat of the tree of life and live forever in new Jerusalem, which will be in a whole new creation. We'll outlive it all. And what that means is that we can be like a man named Gordon Gilkey. He was a Christian leader in Portland, Oregon years ago. You may have heard of him. His doctor told him that he had uh, an incurable disease. Death could not be averted nor long delayed. Here's his own account of what he did then. His doctor was in downtown Portland. I walked to my home five miles from the center of the city. And as I walked, I looked at the river and the mountain, which I love, and then as twilight deepened at the stars glimmering in the sky. And then God gave me to see. And I said to them, I may not see you many times more, but river, I shall be alive when you have ceased running into the sea. Mountain, I shall be alive when you have sunk down into the plain. Stars, I shall be alive when you have fallen away with this old creation. I'll be alive when all of you have passed away. And how alive are we going to be? Well, this moves us to point two in your notes, which comes in the letter to the church at Smyrna, the second letter, chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, To him who overcomes, I will give the crown of life. That's how alive we will be, eating from the tree of life. It means that our resurrected spirits will be crowned with bodies that will be ablaze with glory, like the sun shining in its strength. As C.S. Lewis said, in that day, we will be dazzling, radiant, immortal. Pulsing all through we will be with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. It's indescribable. He said, the dullest and most uninteresting believer you can now talk to will one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, rivers, stars, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat that'll just be snuffed out like that. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or Everlasting splendors. You you might call it an an extreme makeover. (laughs) With indescribably invaluable bodies. So whatever you're seeing in the mirror, if you don't recognize yourself, whatever your granddaughter may say, take heart. Men will either be everlasting splendors or, Lewis says, immortal horrors, which is what Christ goes on to say. In verse 11, he who overcomes, point three in your notes, will not be hurt by the second death. According to Revelation 20, the second death is the lake of fire, hell itself, which will be full of immortal horrors. 
We're talking hell here. And what that means is this, no matter how hard life gets, this overcoming life of labor, through all you may suffer, there's something indescribably worse that will last forever. So no matter what you're going through, remember, no care compares to what you've been spared. The second death. And to him who overcomes, verse 17.4 in your notes, I will give some of the hidden manna. We don't have time to go through all this. To him who overcomes, verse 17, let's focus on point five for a sec. I'll give a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him who receives it. We're just scratching the surface here, but he's going to give each of us a new name that only we will know, that only you will know. And of course, he will too because he gave it to you. Which means that it'll just be between you and him and no one else. It won't be, this means it won't be a generic uh, relationship with him. It'll be something deep, a name is a person's unique nature. It'll be something deep between you and him that you will share, something based on who you are uniquely and who he is uniquely for you. No generic relationships here. Who loves everyone just you, generically, no, specially. And to make that possible, he's going to give you a new name. The symbol of the, the new you. Like it says in Isaiah, I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face, a name that will be indescribably invaluable. And I will give him the morning star, point seven, verse 28. We know Christ is the morning star, and this is the fulfillment of what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19, the day will dawn, it's that day he's talking about, and the morning star will rise in your hearts. That's what he means when he says, I'll give you myself, like the morning star rising in you forever. It means that you're going to be a star. And you're rising with him on his coattails to be that. Your career may have gone down in flames or your marriage or your family or your health, but you are a rising star. you're becoming indescribably invaluable. And he who overcomes, verse 12 of chapter 3, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We're skipping down to point 9 in your notes. A pillar in the temple of my God. We know from, that, that New Jerusalem will be the temple of God. We're told that in Revelation 21. And this means that just, a, a lot of things, but one of them is this. Just like some people, we call them you know, pillars of the community or of the church. We'll be pillars of of the city, and not just any city, but the holy city, the celestial city, the capital city of the eternal kingdom, with the centerpiece of the new creation. We'll be pillars there. 
And he goes on to say, he'll never go out of it because I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my new name. This means that we will belong where they are forever. Which leads to the last one, chapter 3, verse 21. Christ ends with the best of them all at the heart of New Jerusalem having teed it up with the church just before Philadelphia, pillars and the temple of my God. He who overcomes, we're not just to be pillars that never relate to him, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. It's point 10 in your notes that we will be forever with him. It's the last of the rewards, which in the Greek means it's the most important. It's the best of all, he who overcomes. I will give and what is that difference that it makes all of these rewards climaxing that will be with him well it's like my first father said just before he died back in 1960 I was six years old we were missionaries in Hong Kong he was 32 years old racked with cancer The care wasn't good at these Hong Kong hospitals, so he had bed sores an inch deep, been in the hospital for a year. His kidneys had stopped working. Even the morphine uh, wouldn't take the pain away. Two mornings before he passed, he woke up and told my mother, he said, I saw heaven last night. And she said, did you? What was it like? And... He struggled for words, and finally he said he could only whisper, words can't express it. And then, with a faltering voice, he struggled to sing. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus forever with him on his throne. And she joined in with... Her angelic voice, I know I'm biased, but my mother had an angelic voice. And along with his whispers, they sang together, it will be worth it all when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Bravely run the race. Be an overcomer. Because he who overcomes, I will give. And so we have the summary of it all at the bottom of your notes. It will be three simple words that say it all. Worth it all. It will be worth it all. So much so that words won't be able to express it, just like my father said. It will be inevitable and it will be indescribably invaluable. 